All right, Revelation 16. I will be reading verses 8 through 16. And that's what we'll consider tonight. So give your attention as God's Word is read. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, as they blasph- and, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their, pain, of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together at the place, or to the place, called in Hebrew, Armageddon. So two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of chapter 16, the first three bowls of God's wrath, and then this sort of chorus that we see in heaven after the first three bowls are poured out. And as we've been saying all along, of course, Revelation chapters 15 through 16 form the fourth cycle uh, that we see in Revelation uh, between chapters 4 and 20. So we saw that the seven seals, that was the first cycle, the seven seals back in, I think that's pretty much chapter 4 through chapter 8, that gives us a sort of a big picture view of the course of redemptive history during this period we're calling the church age. So as each seal was broken, we see something that speaks about uh, events that occur during this period of time that we're looking at. Then later on in uh, chapters 8 through um, 11, we saw the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are sort of direct judgments from God because every time a trumpet was blown, we saw something coming down from heaven to the earth. So these are direct judgments from God to the earth, but they have a limited effect. Each time a judgment happened, one-third of something was destroyed, whether it was the seas, whether it was the grassland, whether it was the oceans or whatever. One-third. So these trumpets are sort of like the warnings of final judgment to come. The third cycle uh, took us from chapters 12 through 14 and uh, show us, again, sort of the broad scope of redemptive history uh, through the actions of these symbolic figures that we saw. The woman, the child, the dragon, the two beasts, and so on. So those are the first three cycles. Now as we come to the seven bowls, as we said before, these cycles are all looking at the same period of time. Okay, Again, that period of time, just to refresh your memory, goes from the resurrection of Jesus to His uh, return in glory at the end of the age. So all of these cycles look at that same period of time from different perspectives. 
Now the bulls, of course, they seem to focus more on the end of that period. So they really sort of sharpen the focus toward the end of that period of the church age. And the reason they do so is because the bulls symbolize the final judgment. As we saw earlier in chapter 15, it says, with the seven bulls of the wrath of God marks the end or the finish of His wrath. The pouring out of the full wrath of God. So what has been building up for some time now as the dam of God's patience has been holding back His wrath for some time now. That dam is about to burst and God's wrath is about to be poured out on the earth. Now at the expense of repeating myself, we need to keep in mind that what we see, of course, in the book of Revelation is symbolic. It is not to be taken literally. So these are signs and symbols in Revelation. And these signs and symbols give us in vivid images the unfolding of redemptive history. And of course, then in verses 1-7 through of chapter 16, we saw the command then from God to go forth. He commands these seven angels that have the seven bowls of His wrath to go forth and pour these bowls on the earth. Pour these bowls which contain the fullness of My wrath on the earth. And then we looked at the first three bowls. The first and second and third bowls were, you know, we kind of looked at those fairly rapidly. uh, Which used, they, they borrow imagery from the plagues that have been sort of cast on Egypt. When God was delivering His people from Egypt, He sent ten plagues. Those were actual, literal plagues. So when it says that Egypt was full of frogs or full of locusts. That's literal. That actually happened. But Revelation is borrowing some of that imagery to describe the bowl judgments here. Then finally, we saw some commentary from heaven in which we see these judgments are described and proclaimed as just and righteous. And we, we, we looked at God's wrath a little bit. We took a little excursus on God's wrath and showed that God is justified in executing His judgment on the earth for our sins. He is not being, he's not being overly reactionary. He's not being mean and, and nasty to His people. This wrath that is poured out as described by the angels and as described by those under the altar is true and righteous. As those under the altar say, true and righteous are your judgments, Lord God Almighty. So God is perfectly just to do what He is doing. He's not overreacting. And if you think He is overreacting, this is to have a small view of your sin and a small view of the holiness of God. And that's kind of what you see amongst the people in the world today, right? My sin isn't too bad. We don't even use the word sin anymore. We don't like the word sin because the word sin, well, that's, that's bad. So these are just, it's just my personality. Or it's just, these are just my little you know, personality quirks or, you know, these are just my little peccadillos, my little mistakes. And, and they, they downplay their sin and they downplay the holiness of God. But if you think about how in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah has the vision of God high and lifted up on His throne, Isaiah was a prophet called by God. And Isaiah was, compared to his contemporaries, the people in Israel during that day, Isaiah was a holy man. I mean, he was one of the best. He was one of the most righteous people. And he gets just a glimpse of the holiness of God and he says what? Woe is me! That word woe, it means cursed. I am cursed. 
Why am I cursed? Because I saw God. <laughs> That's why. And I realize my sin. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. So he recognizes his sin before holy God. Probably something he himself had to be educated on. You know, again, a, a holy, righteous man compared to the world standards, yet when compared to God, who is perfectly holy, he thought himself cursed. He says, I am undone. I am falling, literally falling in pieces here before the holiness of God. So we see the wrath of God coming out. It is just and righteous and true. We are, he is not overreacting. And we need to have a bigger view of God and a bigger view of our sin. So as we go into the passage tonight here, verses 8-16, through 16, um, we're going to see here the next three bowls of wrath. Okay, We looked at the first three last time. We're going to see bowls 4, 5, and 6 this time. And with the fourth and the fifth bowls, we are going to see here now the reaction of unbelieving mankind to the judgment of God. So again, if you recall back to the Exodus when the plagues were coming down on Egypt, what did Pharaoh do often as each plague came by? Pharaoh would what? Do you remember in the book of Exodus? After a plague hit, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Right? God judged. He brought a judgment upon the nation of Egypt. And Pharaoh, instead of saying, yes, I'm going to let your people go. Oftentimes he did say, yes, I'm going to let your people go. And then he sort of said, aha, you know, I'm going to take it back. I, I changed my mind. I'm not going to let your people go. And, and Pharaoh would then harden his heart. He wouldn't repent of his sin. Ten times plagues came upon Egypt. And ten times Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now we also know the Bible says that God hardened his heart. God removed his restraining hand from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was allowed to continue in his sinful state. And that's what we're going to see here, as particularly bowls four and five, as these judgments come down, the people on earth refuse to repent. They harden their collective hearts. And then the passage, of course, closes with the sixth bowl and this battle, the apocalyptic battle of Armageddon, which we're going to look at in some detail tonight. And the reason we're going to, because I'm titling this, the whole lesson, The Battle of Armageddon. Uh, so we're going to look at some detail in that. So before we look at that climactic battle of Armageddon, which is the sixth bull, we need to look at bulls four and five. See, unfortunately, if you're taking them in order, four and five come before six. It's just the way the numbers are working, okay? So after the voices from heaven which proclaim, God as righteous and true for His judgments, uh, we see now the fourth angel pour out the fourth bowl of God's wrath in verses 8 and 9. Look again there, please. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give Him glory. I should have brought my ESV with me as well. What does the ESV there say for blaspheme? Does it say curse? Okay. Curse, blaspheme. I'm not sure which one is stronger. Blaspheme has a kind of an Old Testament kind of sound to it. you know. But I mean, they're both bad. You don't want to curse God's name. You don't want to blaspheme God's name. So there's the fourth bowl. Now the fourth bowl, in some ways similar to the fourth trumpet, uh, if you've 
Let me just flip back a few pages to Revelation 8, verse 12. You'll see the fourth trumpet. If you have headings in your Bible, it says the fourth trumpet, the heavens struck. And in verse 12, the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. So very similar to the fourth bowl, or to the fourth trumpet, the fourth bowl affects the sun. But unlike the fourth trumpet, the fourth trumpet which caused the sun, moon, stars to shine one-third less brightly, here the fourth bowl uh, gives power to the angel that was pouring that bowl out to scorch men with fire. It's almost as if the sun was turned up, right? It's like, you know... Someone goes up to the thermostat of the sun and cranks it, you know, past 10 all the way to 11. Okay, I don't know if anybody here has watched the movie Spinal Tap, but anyway, there's, you know, got to go up to 11. Anyway, he turns it up to 11 so that the sun scorches men with fire. In a way, this is reminiscent to the first bowl in which the angel, even though the angel poured that first bowl on the earth, it wasn't the earth that was affected, it was the people on the earth They grew sores and boils on their body, painful, loathsome sores. Here the bowl is poured into the sun, and then the people on the earth are scorched because of it. It's uh, the worshipers of the beast, those who are on the earth, the wicked. So it's like these bowls are poured upon creation, but then the effects take uh, place on the people who are still on the earth. It affects on the wicked. Now, of course, we've been arguing for some time that the bowls represent God's final judgment and don't really need to argue it too, too strongly because the Bible says it explicitly in chapter 15, verse 1, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So this is representative of God's final judgment because with these seven bowls, the wrath of God is finished. And here, the, the, the comprehensiveness of the bowl judgments is seen in that they affect all of creation. So if you're just to look at all the bowls kind of quickly, right? The first bowl gets poured on the earth. The second bowl gets poured on the sea. The third bowl gets poured on the rivers and springs of water. The fourth bowl on the sun. The fifth bowl gets poured on kingdoms of the earth. The sixth bowl gets poured on the river Euphrates. And the seventh bowl gets poured into the air. So all, pretty much all aspects, all... Um, Avenues of creation, the, the, the bulls are sort of condemning all of creation. So all in all, at the end, what we're going to see is nothing less than the destruction and the renovation of creation. So this fourth bowl creates a scorching heat. This power to scorch men was given to this fourth angel. Flames and fire, of course, are a common image of judgment. Uh, At the end of Revelation, we'll see this lake of fire in chapters 19 and 20, which symbolizes eternal punishment. Paul in 2 Thessalonians speaks of the uh, fire in the return of Christ who will come with a cleansing fire of judgment in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. All of this is to speak of how this flame is sort of like a flame of judgment that will uh, bring judgment upon the earth. Again, Going back to that passage in Hebrews 12 where the writer says our God is a consuming fire. 
When God comes upon the earth in judgment, He is coming with a consuming fire. So as this fourth bowl is poured out, men are scorched. And it's not just they're getting a bad case of sunburn where they needed you know, sunblock you know, 10,000 or something to protect them. This is judgment. This is a fire of judgment. And of course, the sad thing is we see here after that fourth bowl is poured out, the wicked remain un- unrepentant, right? We see here, and the men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed. So they didn't turn to repentance. What they did was they doubled down. They continued to blaspheme the name of God, to curse the name of God, to continue to shake their fist at God. The God who has power over these plagues. That's kind of like a bad... <laughs> if you got the guy here who's got his hand on the thermostat, right? And you're yelling at him, it's too hot down here! You know, it's like, yeah, I know, I've got my hand on the thermostat. How about if I turn it up a little bit more? They're yelling and screaming and blaspheming the name of the one who has got power over these plagues that are attacking them. And they did not repent and give him glory. We'll look at this a little more because the second, the next bowl talks about this too. To which we now turn. The fifth bowl. Verses 10 and 11. So now we see God's direct judgment upon the beast and his kingdom with the fifth bowl in verses 10 and 11. So then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. So here now, this fifth bowl is poured directly on the throne of the beast. So directly on the center of power in the world. Now I don't know how else to say this except that this is God basically giving it to the beast. Basically giving it to the, to the evil kingdoms of the world. If you recall from our study in Revelation 13, the beast is representative of anti-God world governments. He's an amalgam of all the world governments because that beast is described in ways in which he combines all of the elements from that vision we see in Daniel 7 of the four separate beasts coming up. So this beast in Revelation 13, he is all of them combined. He is the worst of them all. He is evil anti-God world governments. And in the description of that beast in chapter 13, this beast, of course, had ten crowns. Right, He had seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns on each, one crown on each of the horns. This idea of crown, of course, you know, suggests authority. So he's sort of boasting. Look how, look how much power and authority I have. I have these horns, which are representative of strength and power. And I have these crowns which are representative of ruling and authority. And we saw that on these horns were blasphemous names. So this beast speaks blasphemies against God. And the beast later on was given a mouth to speak haughty and blasphemous words. You know, it's just a picture of what you see throughout world history, right? I mean, all, pretty much every government, every kingdom in world history has sought ultimate power. And even to the point of proclaiming their gods or emperors or rulers as, as gods themselves, right? Pharaoh was considered a god. The Roman emperors were considered as gods. Um, most of the kings in the ancient world were considered as gods. And here, God, by judging 
the throne of the beast and his kingdom is basically saying, look, there is only one God, there is only one king, there is only one Lord. So enough with all of you pretenders of to the throne. Because all the kingdoms of the world are trying to compete with God. And God is like, when He pours out this judgment, saying, there is no competition. There is only Me. Now, can you think of another throne and kingdom in the Bible that was plunged into darkness? I'll give you a hint. It begins with the letter E and ends with ipt. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm not, I'm not giving it away, am I? <laughs> that, would, that would be Egypt, right? Ends with E, or starts with E, ends with Ipt. Egypt. If you said Pharaoh in Egypt, you'd be right. So in Exodus 10, this is the ninth plague poured on Egypt. And in Exodus 10, we, we see a little bit of that as the plague comes upon Egypt. It's darkness. In verses 21, I mean, it's 21 to the end of the chapter. I'm just going to read 21 through 23. We're in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. We see, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And then we see how Moses says, okay, go go serve the God. And then he changes his mind, of course, because Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. So again, this was the ninth plague on Egypt. And you could pretty much see that each of these ten plagues, right, each one gets a little more severe, a little more severe, a little more severe, and oppressive. Now, I don't know how dark dark has to be in order to be felt. That seems pretty dark. I mean, <laughs> have anybody been in darkness so dark that it, you could feel it? I don't know what that means. That seems pretty, pretty scary. Uh, and here we see the God who is the creator of light, right? God has light in Himself. God spoke light in existence at the beginning of creation when He said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. He turns on the lights. Here, who the same God now brings darkness. He turns off the lights on the throne on, on Egypt. And also here we see in this uh, fifth bowl on the throne of the beast. So these plagues, again, these plagues in Egypt are but a foretaste of God's final judgment. So what God did in Egypt is just sort of a preview of coming attractions for what He will do at the end of the age when He pours out His full judgment. It's like Egypt was God in the batter's box taking His warm-up swings, and the bowl judgments are now God in the batter's box getting ready to knock one out of the park. That's what we see here for these, these judgments. Now, darkness, of course, is something that's also associated with the day of the Lord. Um, you don't need to turn to these passages. I'm just going to turn to them real quick. I mean, you could turn them if you want. I'm not going to stop you from turning to them. But in Isaiah 13, 
Again, darkness is a common theme in the day of the Lord type of judgments. In Isaiah 13, verses 9 and 10, the prophet here, this is a proclamation against Babylon, but then he says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Again, the day of the Lord. So now looking forward to the end. Cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Or later on in Isaiah in chapter 24, verses 21-23, it shall come to pass in that day, the day of the Lord, that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and will be shut up in prison. After many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and Jerusalem and before His elders gloriously." And then one more. This is a fairly well-known passage because it's quoted in Acts chapter 2. And this will be Joel chapter 2. Joel has a very uh, distinct day of the Lord prophecy as well. And Peter picks that up in his Pentecost Day sermon. In Joel chapter 2, verses 30 to 32, the prophet here says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So you have all these this idea of darkness sort of prefiguring the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord comes, darkness comes upon the land. And again, we mentioned this earlier, but there was a day of the Lord event at the cross. And again, at the cross, what happened when Jesus was crucified among the many things that happened? Well, darkness came upon the land for three hours as the judgment of God for our sins was being poured on the shoulders of His Son, Jesus Christ. So that was a day of the Lord event in a sense. And again, here we see as a result of this sort of palpable darkness, the darkness that you can feel, how do the wicked respond? Well, we see here that they nod their, their tongues because of the pain. They continue to blaspheme and curse God and they refuse to repent. Just like we saw at the end of the fourth bowl. And this has been seen in Revelation before in some of the trumpet judgments, I believe, as well. No amount of wrath and judgment from God turns the wicked from their ways. That's kind of what we're seeing here. These are people who, over whom have given themselves to the beast. They have refused to worship God. They worship the beast instead. They do not repent. When God brings judgment, all they do is curse His name. The cry of the wicked is that God is unfair, unjust, and cruel. Right? Why are you doing this, God? You are unfair. You are not righteous. But we already know, because we saw this last time, that God is righteous and true. His judgments are right and true and righteous. This is the cry of the unbeliever, again, who doesn't see their sin as serious and who doesn't see God as holy. 
And just as during the Exodus, when the plagues came and Pharaoh hardened his heart, these people here hardened their hearts. They refused to repent as judgment is poured on, on them through these fourth and fifth bowls. Okay. The moment you've been waiting for. The Battle of Armageddon. Now, whenever you mention Armageddon, you get sort of like a dozen or so prophecy nuts will come out of the woodwork, right? You know, so like Armageddon, you kind of want to look around and see if there are any prophecy nuts popping up from the, the pews or out of the, the wood paneling here in the building. Because it's like catnip to dispensationalists, okay? You know, because they have all these little in, intricate prophecies and prophecy charts and the day, you know, when is, when is Armageddon, when that's going to happen and all this stuff. Armageddon has captured the attention of many movie and book writers. I mean, I did a search on Google for Armageddon, and I think no less than like a dozen or so movies that have the title Armageddon are, have been made, including the Bruce Willis one, which is really just about a big asteroid that's going to come and destroy the Earth. But, you know, it's called Armageddon because the idea is if the asteroid hits the Earth, that's it. It's the end. Armageddon is sort of tied to the end. It's an apocalyptic type of, of word that means the end. And hopefully tonight, what I hope to do is bring some clarity to a topic that I think is filled with confusion. Now, I think I hinted two weeks ago that I have a somewhat interesting take on it. It's not my take, but it's a take I agree with, I should say. And I'm going to say here at the outset, I'm going to put all my cards on the table here. My view that I'm going to give you tonight is not a majority view. Okay, I just want to be straight with you. It is not a majority view in Protestant evangelical Christianity. So you are free to disagree with me if you wish. Okay, I'm not going to hold it against you because this is not, like I said, a majority view. Now, Armageddon, of course, is a result of the sixth bowl being poured. So let's just look at that before we get to the actual Armageddon here. So in verse 12, the sixth angel here pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its waters were dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. So the sixth bowl is poured out now on the river Euphrates and it dries up. Now we saw this, I want to say in the trumpets, I think it was the fifth trumpet, fifth or sixth trumpet, I don't recall. But the, we talked about this before, the Euphrates River is a border, it's a boundary. Right? When God... Uh, gave the promised land to his people, the promised land went all the way up to the Euphrates River. That was the original boundary of the promised land. Now, the Israelites never controlled the full scope of the, of the promised land. They had you know, a lot of it at some time. You know, when Solomon was king, they had probably the most territory they ever had, but they never had the full uh, borders or boundaries of the promised land. And the Euphrates River was one of those boundaries. Now, what's beyond the Euphrates River? All the bad guys, right? That's where all the bad guys are. All the enemies of Egypt are beyond the Euphrates. Assyria, Babylon, Persia. All of Israel's enemies are beyond the Euphrates. So when you dry up the river Euphrates, what happens? Now the enemies from the east have a way to get to Israel. They can invade now. So we've got the river dried up. Now we see some activity here from the 
quote-unquote unholy trinity in verses 13 and 14. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So the dragon who's Satan, the beast who looks like Satan, the you know, unholy, un- evil world governments. You have the false prophet who is the purveyor of false religion and philosophy who points and uh, uh, promotes the beast. All three of them here now start to spew out of their mouths these unclean spirits. And these unclean spirits are seen in John's vision as frogs, but they're actually demons who perform signs and, and deceive people. So these, the, the unholy trinity here sends out these demons here to gather together now. All the kings of the earth, they're gathering them together to the battle, as we see here, of that great, uh, the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And we'll see this repeated again later on in Revelation 19, chapter 19, verse 19, and chapter 20, verse 8. The point being here is that the Euphrates being dried up is seen by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet as their opportunity now to strike God. The way has been opened. We can now gather all the forces of the earth together and take God over. We can bring God down. We can strike out at God and His people. Now I'm going to hold off on verse 15 until the end. But uh, as the collective forces of the kings of the earth gather, they gather to a specific place, and we see that in verse 16 here. And they gathered them together at, to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now if you have a New King James Version, you might have a footnote there for Armageddon that says literally Mount Megiddo. Or then you have an M, which stands for majority text. In other words, there's a textual variant. The majority of Greek texts omit the word mountain, just say Megiddo. All right. So here we are. We're going to explain Armageddon here. So you need to put on your thinking caps here. You need to strap in because we're going to go, put your seatbelts on because we're going to go 80 miles an hour down DLD Road. Okay? So you need to. Someone was telling me they went down 80 miles an hour down DLD Road. I won't mention any names, but um, we're just gonna we're just gonna. I'm not, it doesn't mean I'm gonna go fast. It just means strap in, okay? <laughs> strap in. Now, if you have a decent study Bible, like either a Reformation study Bible or a New Geneva, they're basically the same, or some other study Bible, you might have some study notes that tell you that Megiddo was a city, probably on a little hill, that overlooked a very important plain, perhaps maybe a travel route between the countries in Mesopotamia and Egypt. They have to think, you know, Israel, the way it's situated, it's sort of like on a crossroads, right? If you want to go from the east, you know, modern-day Iran, Iraq, or any of those countries, to Egypt, you have to go through Israel if you're going to go on a ground route, Okay. You know, so Israel sort of like a crossroads here. And Megiddo was a town somewhat north of Jerusalem in the northern part of Israel where there was this great plain. And there was a town there. It was on a little bit of a mound, a fortified city. 
but it overlooked this great plain. There were many battles that took place in that plain. There were many battles in the story of the Bible, many battles in world history. Napoleon, I think it was Napoleon once said it was one of the greatest battlefields he ever saw. This great plain here in Megiddo. Now again, like I said, the area of Megiddo was a place in which some key battles in biblical history took place. In particular, um, it was the location of a battle between uh, the forces of Israel commanded by Barak and Deborah in Judges chapters 4 and 5 where they fought the Canaanite kings led by Sisera and um, who was the guy who had the tent peg jammed through his temple? What's that? Jael? Yeah. So those guys. So you had the Canaanite kings who were oppressing Israel. Israel was um, put, you know, delivered to them and then they cried out and then God raised up a judge. In this case it was Deborah and she called Barak and Barak you know, leads the forces and they have a battle in Megiddo. Other battles occurred in Megiddo too. So the popular interpretation, this would be sort of like the literal futurist dispensational view, is that sometime in the, near, in, the, in the distant future, there will be a final battle in Megiddo called Armageddon. Okay? That will be sometime in the future. There, I, I, you know, the Antichrist will rouse all the forces of the world and there will be a literal battle there with the forces of God. Now, a typical Reformed view, because the Reformed view typically doesn't see what we see in Revelation as woodenly literal. Okay? They'll see that the battles, the historic battles of Megiddo are symbolic of a final battle in which God will deliver his people. So just like in the days of Deborah and Barak, where God delivered them through a battle at Megiddo, this idea of a final battle at Mount Megiddo is supposed to draw our attention back to that and say that God will deliver his people. There will be a great final battle, and it will be like those battles at Megiddo where God delivered his people. So that is sort of the typical view you might see in popular commentaries, you might see it in your study notes in your Bible, if you have a study Bible, things like that. So it all po- either way, it all points to that plain, that, that uh, plain of Megiddo north of Jerusalem in the northern parts of Israel. Now I'm going to argue against that. Okay, so this is my minority view. Again, take this with a grain of salt, but as I was studying for this uh, this week and even uh, this morning, reading some articles on this, I'm Little, I'm more and more convinced of this view. The first point against this, as we see here, right, uh, in verse 16 it says, the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So already, right now, we know that this is a Hebrew word. All right? Now, in the Greek, you don't see it here in the English. I don't, does anybody have a Bible that has an H in front of Armageddon? Probably not. It would be Armageddon. Okay. In the Greek, there's, there, there's not a letter H in the, in the Greek alphabet. Okay? So they have these breathing marks. That are, you know, there's a, a smooth breathing mark and a rough breathing mark. If it's a rough breathing mark, you put a sound on it. Okay? And in Greek, it, there's a rough breathing mark over Armageddon. So it's literally pronounced Armageddon. Okay? Now, this, again, this word comes out. And, okay, I'm trying to explain this as, as succinctly as I can. Okay? This word comes out of Hebrew, and the word Harmageddon in Hebrew, Har means mountain or hill, Megadon, which is kind of translated as Megiddo. So that's why you get Mount of Megiddo. Okay, 
Now the thing is confusing is that Megiddo is a plain, right? The Bible describes Megiddo as a plain in 2 Chronicles. It says the plain of Megiddo. Where are the mountains? Why would you say Mount Megiddo if there are no mountains on a plain? You wouldn't say the mountains of Nebraska, right? <laughs> you know, what mountains? You know, maybe if you go out west and you get to the sand hills, but those are kind of loosely, you know, elevating hills. You don't have these jutting mountains that go up thousands and thousands of feet. There are no mountains in Megiddo. So that's the first argument. Second, according to an Old Testament scholar who's passed away, he's been dead 15 years now, a guy named Meredith D. G. Klein, K-L-I-N-E, Meredith Klein. Now, the minute I mention that name, a lot of ministers in the RCUS will probably react like a vampire to garlic, okay? Klein is not very well received in the RCUS because Klein espouses a, a framework view of the days of creation. So he, he sees creation not as a literal six 24-hour days. And that's verboten in the RCUS. So Klein is you know, sort of verboten in a sense. But hey, you can be wrong in one area and still be useful in another area, right? <laughs> okay. So Klein, going off the work of another scholar named C.C. Torrey, says that the word Armageddon has nothing to do with Megiddo. Has nothing at all to do with Megiddo. So again, I'm going to try to boil down this argument in as succinct a manner as I can, so bear with me. So again, remember, Armageddon, that's, that's the actual pronunciation of the word, is a Hebrew word brought into Greek. And as such, sometimes when you bring words from one language into another, you sort of lose a little bit in the translation. You lose a little bit in the transfer. I'll give you an example. All right, the English word, when you go out and you preach the gospel of someone hoping to convert them, you're doing what? Okay, that's true. But another word begins with E. You are evangelizing, okay? So we spell the word evangelize, E-V-A-N-G-E-L, so on and so forth. In Greek, there's no letter V. In Greek, the letter there is an upsilon, which looks like a U. So you would pronounce it in Greek as euangelion or euangelizo. That is the word to evangelize. So right there, when you take it from Greek into English, or at least it was, I guess it would have been Latin at that time, when you take it from Greek into Latin, there's no U in Latin, there is a V. That's where you get the V for evangelize. That's kind of what's happening here with Megiddo. Okay, I'm hoping I'm not losing anybody here. Okay, they, they, there's, a word, there's a word in Hebrew that means a place of meeting or a place of assembly, an assembly point. And that word in Hebrew is called moed. And that word, when it is brought into Greek, becomes, in a sense, megiddo. And the reason why is because there's a Greek letter called the ayin, which kind of looks like a backwards Y. And if you were to look at the Greek letter gamma, which is their G, they look alike. You have to take my word for it. The ion and the gamma look alike. So sometimes when you port words from Hebrew to Greek, that ion becomes a gamma. So moed becomes megiddo. That's why this, this scholar was arguing that the transfer from Hebrew to Greek changes the word from moed to megiddo. So you're no longer talking about the mount of gathering or the mount of assembly. You're now talking about this fictitious mount in Megiddo where there is no mountain. 
Is that kind of clear? I'm seeing blank looks. <laughs> Just think of it as it's, the, it's what happens when you take a word from one language to another. You, a, a letter gets flipped, okay? Now, that's, that's the linguistic argument. They also make an argument, Klein and Tory, that looking at some biblical passages that we're going to look at here in a moment, that the mount of gathering, the mount of assembly, this Mount Moed, is linked often to these Day of the Lord events. First, there are passages which see the nations gathering to Jerusalem on the final day. Now, you're, you can jot these references down. You're more than welcome to turn with me to them if you want. But Isaiah chapter 29. Verses 1 through 7. I'm going to look at three prophecies here. You might want to keep your finger in Isaiah because we're going to go flip back to it a little bit. So first it's going to be Isaiah, then Joel, then Zechariah. So in Isaiah 29, verses 1 through 7, um, here we see, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel. Now Ariel is just another word for Jerusalem. The city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around, yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise siege works against you. You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust in the multitude of the terrible ones, like chaff that passes away. Yet it shall be in an instant, suddenly, you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and flame of devouring fire. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. So here you see this vision of the, or this, this prophecy of the nations gathering to Jerusalem. Now the point I'm going to make later is that the Mount of Gathering is Mount Zion where Jerusalem is. Okay, So that's one prophecy. Now again in the prophet Joel, we saw him earlier. We're going to see him again here. Joel chapter 3 this time. So that's Hosea right after Daniel. Hosea, Joel... And in Joel chapter 3, verse 1, uh, this is God judging the nations. For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That word Jehoshaphat means the judgment of God. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a, a boy as a payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. And then dropping down to verses 14 through 16. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Again, that's Jehoshaphat. 
For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So here, again, the nations are gathered to Jerusalem. They are gathered to Mount Zion in the day of judgment for the, for the, in, in the valley of decision here to have God pronounce his judgment upon them. Then one more in the book of Zechariah. Couple here, Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all that's to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. One more, uh, Zechariah 14. Uh, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall be moved toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. So here we have this picture of the nations gathering to Jerusalem on that last final day of judgment. And then second here also there's a connection with sort of this idea of the mountain of assembly with Mount Zion where God dwells. We saw this in some of these passages here. Uh, just one I want to turn to is Psalm 48. We, I think we preached through this psalm a year ago or so. But Psalm 48 talks about the glory of God in Zion. So again, this connection between the Mount of Assembly, or the Mount of Gathering, with Mount Zion. So they're, they're, they're the same thing. This is, Mount Zion is where God dwells. So Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, or the extremities of the north. The city of the great King, God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled, kings of the earth. They passed by together. They saw it and so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there in pain as of a woman in birth pangs. And when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. You sit in, 
Sorry, went one page over too many. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Then he goes on, walk about Zion, count her towers if you can, so on and so forth. So here, the Mount of Assembly where the kings are gathered is identified as Mount Zion where Jerusalem is, Mount Zion where God dwells. Mount Zion in earth is a replica or a, a sort of a type of Mount Zion, the heavenly Mount Zion where God actually dwells. Now, back in Revelation, if you see, remember the unholy trinity causes all the world to gather. And they gather at a mount. And that mount, I'm arguing, is the mount of assembly, the mount of gathering, not Mount Megiddo. And then one final passage is Psalm 2. We've looked at this psalm before too because it's, it's a great messianic psalm in which God says that He has anointed His Holy One and He has given Him the kingdoms and the kingdoms will either bow before Him in obeisance or they will be forced to bow because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is great because this is, this is kind of what I picture Armageddon to be like, the actual battle, right? Where the psalmist says, why do the nations rage? So the nations are, they are enticed by the demonic spirits coming out of the unholy trinity. They're enticed to come against God. So why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That is what I actually... You know, that is exactly what's happening in Revelation 16. The people of the earth are being gathered at the end and they are being enticed to, to, to sort of actually, if you think about it, just mount this like hopeless campaign against the God of heaven and earth. Because in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> so he sees the, the assembled forces of the world gathering at Mount Zion, and he's like, <laughs> you silly, 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 evil people. What are you doing? The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress, him, distress them uh, in His deep displeasure. And then He says, Yet I have set My King on My holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will give You the nations for Your inheritance and the ends of the earth for Your possession. You shall break them. With a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what the last battle is going to be like. Jesus is going to come out with his rod of iron. He's just going to break everything. He's going to dash them to pieces. We'll see this in Revelation 19. He comes down. He's got the whole host of heaven coming behind him. But they're sort of like spectators. They don't even need to take part of the battle. Jesus comes, opens his mouth. The sword comes out of his mouth and wipes out everybody on the earth. One word. The word of God destroys them all. Verse, <clears throat> verse 10 of Psalm 2, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all who put their trust in Him. So there again, there's that. Repent now while you can, because if you don't, the Lord will come, His anointed will come with His rod of iron and will dash you to pieces. Now I could say more. <laughs> I can say a lot more, but time is running away with me here. 
But I, I hope I've made my case. I hope I made my case that this place of gathering is not Mount Megiddo because there's no such place. It is not the plain of Megiddo because that doesn't really do justice to the weight of Scripture that we saw where all of the forces of earth, according to all these Old Testament passages we looked at, are gathered to God's holy mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, you know, where the people of God are, where God is. The place of gathering is the mount of gathering, the mount of assembly, Har Moed, Mount Zion, God's holy hill. And as we saw in Psalm 2, the battle will be a one-sided affair. Then real briefly, finally, that verse that I skipped, verse 15, Jesus himself here interjects a warning. If you've got a red-letter Bible, those words are in red. That's Jesus talking. He says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. This is something Jesus said in the Gospels, right? That he will come as a thief. We looked at first, uh, Second Peter, where the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, meaning that when God's judgment comes, it's going to come on a day that the wicked do not expect it. They are good, just like in the days of Moses. That's again, or not Moses, Noah. The days of Noah, right? They, the Bible uses that description. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving and marrying. All of a sudden, boom, the judgment of God comes. So this is a wake-up call to the, to the, to the faithful here to, to keep watch, to stay vigilant, to be dressed and ready for action lest you walk and be shamed. So here we have it. Um, this passage here, we are done with the, with the fourth, fifth, and sixth bowls. The battle of Armageddon is not really much of a battle. It is a one-sided affair in which God will completely wipe out those who are gathered against Him. Uh, this is not about, in my opinion, it is not about Mount Megiddo or the plains of Megiddo. It is about the Mount of Assembly. Um, the forces of the earth will gather to, the, to a symbolic Mount Zion. They will gather against the people of God and their God there will uh, crush them with one blow.